Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In Ukraine, valiant people are facing down a military giant. Their unity, their bravery, their defiance in the face of invasion are an inspiration. But who are these people? And how has Ukraine changed in recent years? History is being made, but really, I, Richard, you and I don't know that much about Ukraine. So, so it's appropriate that today we talk to an historian who's an expert on the Ukraine of today. Understanding Ukraine, Marcy Shore. I'm terrified for my, my friends. I'm desperate to find a, a way to help. The Ukrainians will not give up. You know, they are going to fight. Um, the solidarity is remarkable. In 2014, there was much more of a split. I mean, there was a sense that various kinds of, you know, Russian disinformation, manipulation, you know, um, hybrid warfare had really been effective um, in large parts of the East. I don't feel that now. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? We're all just glued to Twitter and television and whatever news sources we use, trying to keep tabs on what's happening in Ukraine. But, you know, we also lack some of the, the background to fully understand these events. So I think what's nice about doing a podcast like this, Richard, is that we get the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper, not to try to cover the breaking news, but to go back and look at some of the events of recent history that have contributed to this moment. And so we thought it would be helpful to learn more about the recent political awakening and, and why the Ukrainian people are prepared to fight. Our guest is Marcy Shore, an associate professor of history at Yale University and the author of The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. That's an in-depth look at the Maidan revolution in 2014 that really set the stage for today's events. She's a scholar of Eastern Europe in the post-Soviet era. Marcy Shore joins us from her office on campus at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. Thanks for being on How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for having me. Ukraine has been independent for more than 30 years since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Vladimir Putin claims it's not a legitimate nation. Is this claim just merely a cover for the invasion? Yes, absolutely. It's completely nonsensical. 
it's crazed and deluded, like most of the things he said. It, it's not even clear to me it makes sense to engage it. Um, he's just decided to invade, bomb, slaughter another country. A lot of your work has involved really getting to know the Ukrainian people and some of the events that have shaped their national identity today. And it's a country that has been through so much over the past uh, century or more, including famine under Stalin, occupation before and through World War II. But a little bit more recently, there was the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. You, you say this had a big impact on the Ukrainian psyche and their feelings about their neighbor, Russia. What happened? Well, first of all, at that time, there was no neighbor Russia precisely. At that time, it was all the Soviet Union. Um, but Chernobyl is in present day Ukraine. Um, Obviously, the radiation spread everywhere. You can't contain radiation. Um, Kiev was especially vulnerable. And uh, among the grotesque things that happened in the immediate aftermath of Chernobyl, as the Soviet government tried to cover it up, was a, a May Day parade in Kiev that brought you know, thousands and thousands of people onto the streets. But bringing all those people onto the streets, given the way the wind was going, given the environmental conditions in Kiev, was fatal and was literally murderous you know, for people. The Soviet regime deliberately covered that up. So there's a generation for whom Chernobyl was a coming of age experience into political consciousness. And when I, I was working on the book about the Ukrainian revolution of, of 2013 to 2014, when I spoke to people who were my age or a bit older, you know, often the first demonstration they went to, you know, the, the coming of their political consciousness had to do with Chernobyl. Has Ukraine's sense of its own identity, of being different from Russia, really grown in recent years? Has it been a steady process? I think it has been a steady process. And in particular, to talk about recent history, there was a revolution of 2013 to 2014 that, from my point of view of an East Europeanist, was the first real revolution I saw in Eastern Europe since I had been coming there since the early 1990s. Um, and it was an extraordinary thing to watch. Um, afterwards, I think Ukraine was a different country. I think that the Ukraine of November 2013 was a different country from the Ukraine of February 2014. And it was a, a gift and a privilege to be able to watch that even from a distance unfold. The revolution uh, of 2013-14, the, the revolution of, of dignity or the maiden revolution as it's known, was kind of a a second attempt at something that had first occurred in 2004 with the Orange Revolution. Um, so Ukraine got its independence somewhat by default in 1991 as the whole Soviet Union fell apart. And one thing I think it, it's important to keep in mind, the Soviet Union, the Soviet experiment was the largest scale, deepest, most radical social engineering experiment that has ever been known to man. It still remains to be grasped that the magnitude of the experiment and the magnitude of the failure. It was meant to last forever. 
people did not think they would see it fall in their lifetime. And then suddenly it fell apart. Nobody knew what was going to come next. There were 15 Soviet republics suddenly kind of dissolved in 1991. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Anything was possible. You know, in post-independence Ukraine in the 1990s, like in a lot of places in the former Soviet Union and to a certain extent through former communist Eastern Europe as well, there was a struggle for transition. There was corruption. There was, you know, former communist apparatchiks who were turning themselves into mafia-like capitalists. There was gangsterism. There was, you know, very fragile, you know, and shaky institutions as there was an attempt to kind of reconstruct a different world and nobody knew what that would be. That came to a came to a climax in a certain way with the 2004 presidential election between two victors. Um, One was Viktor Yanukovych, who was your kind of post-Soviet gangster type with a criminal background and ties to Russia. Um, The other was Viktor Yushchenko, who appeared to be the West-leaning, European-facing, more enlightened, possibly a chance at liberal democracy candidate. As a result of an attempt to poison Yushchenko with dioxin, um, which in fact you know, succeeded to a certain extent. You can look up these photos. Yushchenko's face was was grossly disfigured. Yeah, it's it it's a staggering and and horrifying thing to to look at what they did to that man. Yes, yes, it was, and it was shocking at the time, and it was certainly not a secret. Um, as a result of that dioxin poisoning and widespread election fraud, Yanukovych declared himself the winner. At that point, Ukrainians went out onto the street. They went out into the very large square called the Maidan in the center of Kiev. It was November. It was very cold there. Um, And they stayed for three weeks peacefully and froze and demanded free elections. And extraordinarily, they were successful without a shot being fired. Um, the elections were done over. Yushchenko was declared the winner. He was inaugurated, I think, in January 2005, um, and everyone was happy and went home. And then the short version of that story is that Yushchenko did not turn out to be the messiah that people had hoped he would be. He turned out to be a disappointment. And in the meantime, Yanukovych, whom nobody ever would have thought could possibly come back, was still hovering. I mean, he has been so thoroughly discredited. You not only lose an election, but you're exposed with having tried to fake the election and poison your opponent with dioxin. He hires this slick Washington consultant um, with a special boutique PR industry for gangsters with presidential ambitions. And that sleek Washington consultant um, comes over to Kiev, even though he doesn't speak Russian, he doesn't speak Ukrainian, and gives Yanukovych a makeover. This is Paul Manafort. This is Paul Manafort. Um, And Paul Manafort was very effective. Um, And Yanukovych comes back in 2010, and this time legitimately wins 
the, the 2010 elections. Um, and he continued to be his usual gangster self. Uh, there was corruption. He was basically embezzling all the country's resources and living in a palace and distributing them to his friends. He was not a charismatic leader. He wasn't spinning a grand imperialist narrative. He was just nakedly, unapologetically a gangster, exactly who he had always been, perhaps with a slightly better suit and a slightly better haircut after you know, Manafort had kind of worked him over. That said, he was nominally leading Ukraine, if very slowly, towards a course that maybe in a generation or two would lead to European Union integration. And especially for a younger generation, this was this distant but desperate promise of hope. This was, was someday Europe going to be open to Ukraine? And there was a very long anticipated association agreement with the European Union that was set to be signed in November 2013. It was not membership. It was a foot in the door. You know, and for young people, for students, that was everything. Would the world be open to them or not? Would they be able to travel without waiting in long lines and humiliating themselves and spending money they didn't have and pleading for a visa? And so when under pressure from Putin at the 11th hour, when everything was all ready to be signed in Vilnius, Yanukovych suddenly, November 21st, 2013, says, no, I'm not going to sign it. And then protests erupted. That was the point in which a lot of people felt like they had been punched in the stomach. I mean, but certainly a certain kind of, you know, young, upwardly mobile, westward looking population for whom Europe meant everything. Nothing might have happened had not a then 32 year old Afghan Ukrainian journalist. History is often made by these cosmopolitan types. Afghan Ukrainian journalist um, posted in Russian on Facebook a very short message. His name was Mustafa Nayem. And he said, hey, guys, let's be serious. If you're really upset, come out to the Maidan by midnight tonight. Likes do not count. Yeah, that's a very interesting phrase. I mean, th in the in the time of Facebook, we all know what a like is. And uh, that phrase, likes do not count, is perhaps a reference to the power of social media, right? Absolutely. I mean, that it struck me right away as a historian that, well, that's a sentence that would have made no sense before Facebook. It would have been meaningless. You know, and now, in fact, you know, this is going to be the mobilizing slogan for the most significant revolution that happened in Europe in the 21st century, certainly since the fall of communism. It was extraordinary. People come out to the Maidan, mostly young people, but not exclusively young people. Um, they freeze, they play music, they hold hands, they're completely peaceful. They're not interested in opposition political parties. They're not interested in ethnic politics. They're not interested in, you know, being anti-Russian. They're not interested in language politics. They're not interested in religious differences. They are interested in Europe's being open to them. Their slogan is Ukraine is Europe. It was almost a kind of platonic essence of, of Europe, you know, of, of, of Europe as human rights, Europe as the rule of law, Europe as, you know, some kind of protection of human dignity. Now, Europe in, in the sense that Western civilization was meant when someone famously asked Gandhi what he thinks of Western civilization and Gandhi answers, 
it would be a very good fit. (laughs) So how did Yanukovych respond to this peaceful protest in the streets? It went on for, you know, nine days and it might have just kind of fizzled out. It was getting colder and colder. You know, there were hundreds of people, sometimes a couple thousand people on the Maidan, which is a huge, very geographically complex square in the center of Kiev. There were also people out on the so-called smaller Maidans in the squares of their own towns and cities you know, all throughout Ukraine. And it all might have kind of fizzled out had not Yanukovych um, nine days later decided to send out his riot police thugs to brutally beat up the students. And then you say something else happened with social media, that the crowd turned the cameras on itself. Yes. Well, that comes, that comes, I would say, slightly later. Sorry. I'll I'll, I'll shut up. No, no, no. That's okay. No, no. That that does happen. But I think that's significant in, you know, in, in another couple of days. I mean, I say, first of all, the students get brutally beaten up. Nobody gets killed. Um, but they're very seriously beaten. And that is a shock because there had been some kind of implicit, tacit social contract going on. It was a gangster-like regime. You know, they were stealing the country's wealth. You know, it, it was a kleptocratic oligarchy. You know, here and there you have an opposition journalist who disappears and was assassinated. It's not like it was a nice situation. But that said, there had not been mass violence used by the government against the population, against peaceful protesters at any time since 1991. So there's an an implicit social contract that was broken. There was a shock. And I think Yanukovych, as, as not bright as he is, knew it was going to be a shock. And my sense is he was counting on at that time that the parents were going to come along and pull their kids off the street. They were going to be terrified. And that was where he miscalculated, because instead of pulling their kids off the streets, the parents joined them there. And a day later, you have not a few hundred, but you have close to a million people on the streets of Kiev. No one has ever seen that many people on the streets of Kiev. And now they're not just shouting, Ukraine is Europe. Now they're shouting, we will not permit you to beat our children. Later, I talked to one of the, the students who, who was, was there that night, who wasn't even a college student, was a high school student, a 16-year-old kid, I mean, literally a kid, you know, who was kind of, his shoulder was battered in. And I, I, I said, you know, your, your mother must have been very upset. I mean, he's still living with his mother. I mean, you come back. And he's like, my mother. My mother was making Molotov cocktails on Khrushchev Street. <laughs> wow. It's an extraordinary story. Then what happened? Within a couple days, the Maidan becomes set up no longer just as a site of protest, but as a whole parallel polis, a parallel society. There are massive kitchens functioning. There are clothing distribution points. There are medical clinics, free universities, film screenings, concerts. You have, you have a whole civilization that is set up on the square. And people stayed all winter. And it was, it was a place where people lived, you know, as if they were free people, where people could have set about living in the kind of society they wanted to live in. And that was where, that was when I would say we start talking about the cameras. Um, you have all, and that's where also social media was so hugely important. 
because Yanukovych, you know, had a near monopoly on the official media, um, but not on the social media. And you have a whole generation of young people raised in the internet age who are technologically savvy, you know, who are putting up big cameras on the Maidan. The Maidan live streamed itself. Um, it could never have been organized without social media. Um, it was dependent on people being able to communicate very quickly, people setting up hotlines very quickly. You know, as the winter progressed and the backlash became more and more brutal, you know, demonstrators, you know, who were injured by riot police and ended up in hospitals were being kidnapped. Um, people were disappearing. People were being found dead in the woods. All of that information, all of the helplines were all running through social media. You had doctors who were volunteering at medical clinics because it was dangerous to go to hospitals. There was a whole world there on the Maidan. And the tension increased all winter. I mean, there was more and more violence and there was more and more determination. And, even, and I was not there. I was watching from Vienna and I was watching it streamed and I was following the, the Facebook post and I was you know, reading the news in, in Russian and in Polish and in German and in English was that in, in November, nobody was thinking, you know, we're going to die here. You know, these were young, upwardly mobile people who you know, wanted to be able to travel and study in Europe you know, who came out with, you know, some, with their friends and with music, you know, and insisted on belonging to Europe. Nobody was thinking we're going to die here. And by the middle of January, you could feel almost palpably that something had turned and a critical mass of people had made a decision and they were willing to die there if necessary. And some did. Some did. There was a massacre that culminated that revolution, a, a sniper massacre that Yanukovych unleashed and over 100 people were killed. You're listening to How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Marcy Shore. More from that interview coming up. All over the world, democracy is on the knife's edge. If the West had stood up for democracy, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And at home, we're fighting for the soul of America. We walked up in here amongst hostile people. There's KKK here, there's skinheads here, there's all kinds of that stuff here. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. Don't miss Democracy in Danger, a podcast that's saving government by the people one week at a time. Find us at dindanger.org and wherever you get your audio. What was the impact on Ukraine as a result of that extraordinary few months of late 2013, early 2014? I think Ukraine was a different country afterwards. You know, I think there was a civic nation, let's say, forged in a way it hadn't been before. Um, you know, Russian was as much a language as a Maidan as Ukrainian was. Um, people were speaking all different languages on the Maidan. You know, people of all different religions were showing up at the Maidan. There were rabbis on the Maidan. Um, my, my friend Slavko Hritsak described it as a kind of Noah's Ark. There were two of every kind. It was a moment of overcoming all kinds of social divisions between parents and children and, and, and workers and intellectuals and, you know, Christians and Jews and, you know, the left and the right. And, you know, and there was a sense of like, we want to be treated as human beings and not as things. 
we don't want to be playthings of the powers that be. I mean, it was a revolt against what, what in Russian is called proizvol, which is one of these words that is very difficult to translate, but it, it means arbitrariness in the sense of capriciousness. Um, and what it really is, is a sense that the powers that be can do anything they want to you. And you're like pawns on their chessboard. You know, so when we, we talk about the revolution of dignity here, dignity is the opposite of proizvol. You know, dignity means that you're treated like a person and not a, as a plaything of the powers that be. Dignity means that you are a subject and not an object. You know, when I, when I ask one of my friends, you know, Katya, you know, during the Maidan, she was shuttling back and forth between Vienna and, and Kiev. And every time she got off the plane, like we all kind of jumped on her to ask what was going on, you know, and at a certain point, you know, they're taking away more people, you know, an SOS hotline is set up. And I said, Katya, how did you get an SOS hotline that quickly? And she said, well, there was, you know, an LGBT group that had a kind of confidential hotline for people to call and, you know, talk about things confidentially. And so they already had this hotline and maybe it hadn't been used in that, that much or, you know, maybe it was for a fairly specific purpose. But when you have a little bit of an infrastructure, suddenly that, can, that infrastructure can explode, you know. And so they, the LGBT group transformed their, you know, confidential hotline for people to come discuss issues about gender and sexual identity suddenly into, you know, a, an emergency help hotline for the Maidan. So you saw how all these like little kind of nascent moments of civil society infrastructure just exploded. And that was incredibly empowering. So during the Maidan revolution in the early months of 2014, Yanukovych clearly underestimated the resolve of the Ukrainian people. It seems like Putin made a similar miscalculation in the early days of his invasion. And much of the world has been pretty stunned by Ukraine's response. The first thing to remember is that from our point of view, this is a sudden crisis. From the point of view of people in Ukraine, there's been a war going on for eight years. In the aftermath of the sniper massacre of the Maidan, Yanukovych fled across the border to Russia. You have a kind of absence of power. You know, suddenly the government falls and you have to scramble to put together something new. You can't have new elections two hours later. Nobody knows what's going on. You know, people have just been massacred. There's a sense of exhaustion. And literally, you know, hours later, you have, you know, Putin coming in, illegally annexing the Crimea. He sends in his so-called little green men, you know, meaning guys and unmarked camouflage to take over the Crimean Peninsula was trying to instigate kind of local rebels to rise up. You didn't know if that was going to work or where the borders of that war were going to be. The story of, of the various stories Putin was then disseminating, and he was doing a better job disseminating then. I mean, he was much sharper then. He now seems totally deluded and deranged. He seemed more cynical then, was that the, the my revolution on the Maidan was a CIA-sponsored Ukrainian fascist conspiracy and that the Ukrainian Nazis were now heading east from Kiev to massacre all the Russian speakers. Now, this was completely pulled out of the air. You know, not only was it not a CIA conspiracy, but our Ukrainian friends who were out there risking their lives knew all too well that they were pleading for support from the West and everybody's attention was, was elsewhere. They were there on their own. And moreover, it was not anti-Russian or anti-Russian speaking. Ukraine is a bilingual country. It's bilingual in, in Russian and Ukrainian. 
Um, Russian and Ukrainian are related to one another, you know, more or less the way, say, Spanish and Italian are. You know, they're from the same language family. They're related but distinct. Ukrainian is a stronger language as you move west, and Russian is a stronger language as you move east. Um, Kiev has long been remarkably bilingual, and people can generally switch back and forth dozens of times, you know, in the same conversation, often without even noticing if that's more convenient for, you know, their Western in interlocutors. Um, this was a totally made up story, but, you know, Putin tried to scare people in the east. And he tried to incite kind of local rebels or separatists to rise up and, you know, enact their own rebellions. Um, he failed in Odessa. He failed in Dnipropetrovsk. He failed in Kharkiv. Um, he succeeded to a partial extent in the far eastern post-industrial mining region of the Donbass, um, in which various kind of separatist groups um, using Russian weapons and aided by so-called Russian tourists, you know, and thugs coming across the border, you know, took over local government buildings, started a war, took a lot of people captive. That war in the Donbass has been simmering for eight years. You know, some 14,000 people have been killed. There were, even before this started, over a million and a half internally displaced persons, which are basically domestic refugees, people who become refugees in their own country, who are forced to flee their homes, um, who went west, you know, into the part of Ukraine, not at war. In the past eight years, since war erupted in parts of the East, how has the view of Russia changed on the part of Ukrainians? The view of Russia has changed a lot. The Russian language was under no threat in Ukraine. There was no hostility towards the Russian language that at least I had come across until Putin started a war there. You know, and now, you know, even people for whom Russian is their much better language, you know, started speaking Ukrainian only publicly as, as a sign of resistance. I, I can tell the story of Vladimir Rafaenko, who is a, a, a novelist from Donetsk, a brilliant novelist, who, you know, Donetsk being a large city in, in the Donbass. He's, he was born in 1969. He had lived there his whole life. You know, he had won prizes you know, for literature in Russian. He fled early in the war to Kiev. You know, his, his Russian is much better than his Ukrainian. I mean, he had always written in Russian. And when I met him, you know, after he fled to Kiev, he becomes an internal refugee in his own country. And he said, you know, Marcy, like, I, I'm a Russian, you know, philologist. You know, he's a professor at the university. He's like, I'm a Russian writer. And now I can't even bear to watch Russian films. And does Putin know what he's done to people like me? Nobody could love Russian more than I do. Now, Vladimir is now in, in Kiev and he's fighting. Um, and he... he he emailed me or he messaged me a couple days ago. He's like, it's a war. It's, it's a real war. Tell us about Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. Yeah. Vladimir Zelensky is someone I don't know terribly much about. I was agnostic about him you know, before this happened. I mean, there's obviously something very postmodern about, you know, a comedian who played on television, somebody who inadvertently becomes president and then actually becomes president. It seemed like a, an almost kind of, you know, caricature of this postmodern moment where the border between reality and reality television has been effaced. Um, when I listened to him give that 
speech last Wednesday night, um, right before Putin, you know, declared and launched an invasion. And he gave a speech in Russian directly to Russian people, to Russian citizens. Russian is his stronger language. He's also bilingual. It's an address, you know, to the citizens of a country that's about to attack you that could only have been done when you're speaking to people in a shared native language. It was incredibly intimate. Um, it was very real. There was nothing false or even political about it. You know, he turned to the Russians as one Russian speaker to another and said, don't do this. We don't want to be at war with you. We don't want to fight you. I don't think you want to fight us. Don't do this. There's no reason to do this. He's like, if you come and attack us, we will defend ourselves. You know, you will not see our backs. We will not run away. You will see our faces. But this is not what we want. We don't want to be at war with you. We don't want to be your enemies in any way. And it was very, very moving. And that was the moment when I, I really felt something for Zelensky. All wars are partly won and lost in the media and in global opinion. But this one also has a dimension of social media, which governments don't always control. In the past, the Russian government has used misinformation, disinformation, really effectively in efforts to control opinion in Russia and around the world. But it seems like this time Russia is losing the social media war. How have things changed? What I've observed as a lay person over the past eight years is that the media is much savvier about countering post-truth now. People were really unprepared. Um, Americans were still more unprepared in 2016, um, but Russians and Ukrainians were unprepared in 2013 and 2014. I mean, I think there's now a whole new generation, you know, as well of journalists, as well as an older generation who have learned about hybrid warfare, who have learned about verifying information, who are very savvy about what can be done with bots and trolls. I mean, there's been a whole educational process on both sides of the Atlantic that has occurred since that time. So I think the media is much better. I think everyone is completely prepared for there to be false stories circulating. There are people who are technically competent and kind of a whole army of young people with tech skills all over the place who are donating you know, their time and resources to this. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, we're in a much better state than we were eight years ago. Um, where I fear we are in a much worse state is the Putin of today is not the Putin of eight years ago. Um, the Putin of eight years ago, I found, you know, cynical, cold, calculating, you know, a grand master chess player. When I listened to his Crimea speech, it was it was based on lies, but it was very cleverly done. It was very effectively delivered. That Crimea speech was about eight years ago. Yes, that Crimea speech was 2014, you know, the glorious return of Crimea. It was an act of theater. But he was he was the grand strategist, you know, on his game. When I listened to the speech he gave a week ago on Monday, you know, when he was you know, presaging his decision to give to war, I mean, his Russian was different. I mean, he no longer seemed like the master chess player, the shrewd grand strategist. He seemed unwell. He seemed deranged. Um, 
you know, he no longer seemed clever and cynical. He seemed totally deluded. Um, my intuition, you know, based on, you know, no privileged information about what's going on in his head was that we're now not in, in a chess game. We're now in a Shakespearean drama. And this is an aging man facing his own mortality, you know, who has decided to destroy the world. The tragedy continues to unfold rapidly. And we're well aware that by the time listeners hear this, some events may have changed. But how are you feeling right now as a result of what's happened in, in the past week? I've, I've been in a state of, in some sense, shock. Um, I can't say I'm surprised. I was not confident at all. Putin would not invade. Even so, there's a state of shock. It's been sickening to watch. Um, I'm terrified for my, my friends. I'm desperate to find a, a way to help. The Ukrainians will not give up. You know, they are going to fight. Um, the solidarity is remarkable. In 2014, there was much more of a split. I mean, there was a sense that various kinds of, you know, Russian disinformation, manipulation, you know, um, hybrid warfare had really been effective um, in large parts of the East. I don't feel that now. You know, nobody wants to be raped and pillaged by a foreign army. It, it doesn't have anything to do with what language you speak or what your ethnic background is. I'm, I'm desperately hopeful. Um, there is an enormous amount of support, um, but will it be enough? I keep thinking of the Warsaw Uprising in, uh, you know, in, in 1944. You know, I'm a historian, so I've actually at one point read through the correspondence between um, the Polish government in exile in London during the war, led by Stanislav Mikołajczyk at this time, and Roosevelt and Churchill at the time the Warsaw Uprising breaks out, and the Polish underground is fighting the Nazis, and they are determined and they are desperate, but they don't have anywhere near the kind of resources that the German army does, and they're being slaughtered and Warsaw is being destroyed, and Mikołajczyk is sending these desperate letters to Roosevelt and Churchill saying, please, please come help us. And they're sending back these nice notes saying, well, you know, as much as we'd really like to help you. And of course, you know, you have all our thoughts and prayers, but unfortunately there are these logistical considerations and we can't come over right now. And I, and like, I, I had a sense of terror, you know, watching Zelensky send out these messages and the Ukrainians send out these messages. Now that said, you know, countries are sending them weapons. You know, the, the sanctions seem to be serious. I think the Ukrainians are now fighting for all of us. I think it could be the beginning of, of the Third World War, you know, and I am I am desperately hopeful that as, as difficult as the odds are, they're going to prevail. You know, the spirit is very strong. I'm not at all convinced that most of those Russian soldiers really want to go slaughter Ukrainians. I'm not even convinced that most of them really understand what they're doing there. I mean, now we're kind of counting on the Russians to, to get rid of Putin. You know, we need the soldiers to defect. Marcy Shore, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Marcy Shore. And now a few recommendations. We thought it might be a good idea to talk about where we get our news on the crisis in Ukraine. You want to go first, Jim? Well, Richard, you know, I'm a big fan of Twitter, and it's easy to get bogged down in all the silly opinions and flame wars and stuff. Do people still say flame wars? Anyway, <laughs> you know, these various <laughs> these various battles that, that play out, you have to kind of tune that out. 
And remember that Twitter can be a wonderful source for breaking news. So uh, I'm following a number of people who are, who are reporting from Ukraine. But I also just yesterday started following a guy named Phil Stewart, who is the military and intelligence correspondent for Reuters. Reuters has been a really good source uh, on this conflict and lots of other news. And he's reporting from the Pentagon. So there you get an, an inside look at how the U.S. military is keeping tabs on what's going on over there. For me, a leading source is Yaroslav Trofimov, who is the chief foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He was born in Ukraine, has deep knowledge of the country, and is now in Kiev. Clarissa Ward of CNN is also there, and her reports have been outstanding. CNN doing a good job at the moment of, of covering the war. For a little background and perspective, uh, and I've said this before, I often go to The Economist. And now just a couple of thoughts on our interview with Marcy Shore. You know, so often, Jim, events that seem to be of great importance come and go and we look back and go, hmm, not such a big deal. But the war in Ukraine is that rare moment when we know that history is being made, that the world is changing probably for the worst and is not going to be the same uh, when the war is over. We all may feel less safe. And yet, on the other hand, the West may value its freedoms more seriously than it has done in decades. The, the tragedy and, and danger of this chaotic moment has, I think, pushed all of us well beyond the narrow confines of, of just thinking about the here and now. Yeah, absolutely. The things that are happening on the ground in Ukraine and the changes that are happening across Europe in response, I think many of those will be enduring changes. You know, it, much earlier in your career, Richard, you were present at one of the really, you know, epical events of the creation of the modern era when the Berlin Wall came down. Is this reminding you of that at all? Not in not in that sort of happy, joyous way, but in the sense that that something is happening here that that is a a permanent change. Yeah, that's well put. It is reminding me of how I felt when I got on the plane to go to Berlin in November of 1989 when when the wall came down and and that was a moment of great hope when when people in what had been a divided city came together in a moment of of triumph and optimism for the future. This in some ways is the mirror opposite, but the determination of the people in Berlin in 1989 and now in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities today was both real and raw. And it's not just governments that are having this huge impact on what's going on. It's also the people in the streets. And a big part of what Marcy talked about with us was the power of those people in the streets. I think we need to guard against our enthusiasm and our hopefulness. You know, the odds of this ending well are, are not good. Uh, on the more positive side, I, I think you and I and almost everyone has been impressed the way that Europe has managed to get its act together in you know, ways that I don't think most of us really expected with the severity of the sanctions, the quick coordination, Germany shutting off the Nord Stream 2 
pipeline that they that was being built to bring in even more Russian natural gas. So a corner has been turned here, and and it's good to see the people in the governments of Europe kind of choosing which side they're on. I hope we're both right in our desires that this crisis um, has some uh, constructive sides to it, as well as the tragedy and suffering that's inevitable in the coming weeks and months ahead. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. Jim, say thanks for listening. Oh, thanks for listening. <laughs> This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.